that said. What is this about? A lot of people thought when we did a, a series called How Did We Get Here, that as a science guy, I'd be talking about origins. No, we're talking about how did the churches of Christ start? How did they develop? Why are they changing today? The answer is that they've always changed, by the way, and we're going to talk about one of the most pivotal, in fact, the most, not one of, one of the most uh, pivoting changes and hinge points in our history is about to bubble up. We've worked our way to the late 1840s, and the churches of Christ were very, very um, diverse. Some used instruments, not many, but those that did were in northern churches. Some had women speakers, not a great, but most, not a great amount, but we, we were able to identify about a dozen, and those were mainly in the north and the northeast. That's important to know. Before the Civil War, there were already signs of a north-south divide in our fellowship. In 1849, the northern churches said, we are small. And the Lord said to go into all the world, and we can't. You know, we're a congregation of, of 100 farmers, or we're a congregation of, of 80 over here, or 20 over there, or 800. Some of them were big in the north. But we, we don't have enough money and resources. So let's pull this together. Let's all come together and pull our money. And they formed the American Christian Missionary Society, 1849. Some looked upon this with horror. They said, this is a break from the Declaration and Address. We still have a few copies of that up here if you are a visitor and didn't get it in the last few weeks. Some said, no, it is just another way to fulfill God's command, and we can't do it unless we gather together. It was a very hot topic. A lot of anger was expressed in pulpits. A lot of pulpits got hit with fist. And between those who thought that the Bible, and this is very important, that the Bible was a constitution and the Bible was a narrative, began a split. If you believe the, the Bible is a constitution, you, at that point, and I'm aware politics has changed on things, but at that point, you said, we can only do what the constitution says we can do, and we can't do it if it doesn't mention it. And it didn't mention about a missionary society. I would submit that it may, might have, because it talks about gathering funds from many churches to send to a, another but that argument was made and turned down. Some people, two of whose, rather one of whose name is on the front of our building, Tolbert Fanning, thought the only way to, to be faithful to our church was to lock it in place. Another one was David Lipscomb. So Tolbert Fanning and David Lipscomb said, we have restored the church, lock it down. Don't let anything change from here. You might think, how in the world did people think that you were going to get humans together and over generations it wouldn't change? Two reasons. One, they felt they'd found the formula. And once you find the formula, you don't need to find it again. Just do it. Repeat. Like the shampoo instructions. Lather, rinse, repeat. That's all you need to do. They also thought they were living in the last days and therefore they weren't worried about how it would change over time. They didn't think there would be time. They weren't thinking we were going to last uh, as a planet that much longer. A very powerful argument broke out between Robert Richardson, Talbert Fanning, and Lipscomb. 
Robert Richardson, you might not know his name, he was Alexander Campbell's heir apparent. He was um, the biographer for uh, Campbell. He published Campbell's Millennial Harbinger, which means the uh, announcement of the millennium, the end of time. They thought it was right around the corner. Richardson was not, uh, the division here, by the way, wasn't over the American Missionary Society. It was over something else. Richardson believed that the Holy Spirit can and did indwell in us and work through us, separate and apart. There's a good phrase in our history. From the written Bible. Whereas, Fanning and Lipscomb thought that was a very dangerous idea to let people be thinking God was working with them and that it had to be only what the Bible says, that that's the only work of the Spirit. Charles Hodge, and there's a Charles Hodge who's a world-famous theologian. I'm speaking of the Churches of Christ, Charles Hodge, who is a world-famous preacher and just a delight, has been all of his life. He said the way that we taught the Holy Spirit was that the Holy Spirit's only job was to drop a large leather-bound book down from heaven with a note in it. It said, good luck. And he hasn't talked to anybody or done anything since. Well, that was, you know, Fanning and Lipscomb thought, if you start letting people speak to, you know, God work, then there'll be division and there'll be diversity. And they were afraid of this. They tossed aside some of Scripture, like Romans 1, that tells us that God speaks to us through nature. They got rid of all that and said, no, no, just the Bible. They were looking for, it's very important, they're not mean men, they weren't bad men. They were looking for conformity and control so that God would know his own when the millennium came. Um, isn't it interesting that churches of Christ don't teach the millennium anymore? You know, I don't believe in a millennial reign. If you do, fine, one of us will be surprised. It's, it's, not, it's not a salvation issue. It's not like if Jesus does come back on a planet and says, well, I'm going to build my throne right there. I'm going to say, well, I'm not coming because you weren't plain enough. No, I'm fine. But we don't even teach it. And that was a bedrock of the reason we were thinking you had to lock it down now. Because if we get it done right, we will haste his return. That was said so many times by Campbell, Fanning, and Lipscomb. We can look back in history and see a real problem because they assumed God wanted uniformity and conformity. Brothers and sisters, could God have made it any plainer in nature that he's not interested in uniformity? Look at, the, look at the number of rocks. Look at the number of flowers. Look at the number of clouds. Look at the number of weather days. Look at whatever it is. Look about the room. He never makes the same person twice. And don't come to me later, what about twins? They're different people. And if you've had twins or are a twin, you know that. Right? This is, um, we made an assumption that God wanted conformity. Whereas in Acts 15, which is the only elders meeting in the New Testament, whenever competing factions came about what to do, the elders said, let's not make this difficult for anybody who wants to come to Jesus. Just don't act like a pagan. Don't mess around with the blood and the sex thing that they do in the temples. Other than that, we're not making any rules. They weren't interested in conformity back then. But 
the belief that uniformity was required meant they had to drive out people that were different. And one of those was Jesse Ferguson. Ferguson was considered the best preacher among us, and by the age of 30, he was a minister. He was also quite good-looking. That's him with the Jesse Ferguson. That's people standing against him on the other side. Um, at the age of 30, he was a minister for the largest church in our movement. He was the editor-in-chief writer for the biggest paper in our movement, the Christian magazine. There was some jealousy, but nothing broke out into the open until Ferguson wrote of his opinion of 1 Peter 3. He believed that Jesus, when he died, went to preach to those who had died before he'd arrived on this earth to give them a second chance. And he also did not believe in a literal hell, a place where you would live forever in torment. That was enough for Lipscomb, Fanning, and Campbell to say, these are matters of salvation, this is heresy. And they fought and publicly divided from the most popular preacher in the largest church in our brotherhood. If you don't think things like that happen, it was only a matter of a few years ago that Where the Saints Meet, which is a big book that tells where the churches of Christ are if you want to go find one, left out the largest church in our fellowship. At that time called Richland Hills, now called The Hills in Fort Worth. Why? Because they use instruments sometimes. Kicked it out. They, they kicked out a bunch of others as well, but that's the one that made the big splash. And we're all going, really? You get to choose this? By the way, they, they have re-looked at that, and they're in the process of continuing to re-look at that, but we do this. We're, we're that way. You know, I've got very, very strong opinions about a lot of things. I bet you do too. Are we going to divide over it? Or are we going to be one big happy family? You know, think about it. Anyway, they said that was heresy. Ferguson was forced out of his pulpit, out of the movement. Uh, closest thing I can get to that in more modern times isn't all that more modern. Think about the 1960s and 70s with Belmont not far away from you, and Don Fento, when he started doing some absolutely outrageous things like actually loving on hippies and letting musicians come in and be a part of the worship. And I can remember as a boy, I mean, there was 3,000 miles of water between us and this, and we're being told about Don Fento will get you, you know, that sort of thing. It was terrifying. We knew if he didn't get us, a guy named Carl Catcherside would, but that's different. We'll talk about him later. Lipscomb was a young Bible student at the time, and he decided the only way to keep people like Ferguson out of the movement was to design a template, and all of our churches had to stay within that template. Barton W. Stone, by the way, the guy on the other side there, disagreed with this strongly. He believed God wanted the diversity in his family, and to prove it, he refused to divide with Campbell and Lipscomb, even though they divided with him. He considered them brothers, even when they didn't consider him a brother. Stone, to the day he died, refused to divide with any believer in Christ. By the way, the missionary society is still going on. And then, right in the middle, not north, not south, but Kentucky. And in fact, in a, right in a place called Midway. So... There was a guy named L.L. L. Pinkerton that was preaching for a church that couldn't sing. 
Oh, they are horrible. That's what, I, that's what everybody said, that they were at, not a person could sing. So he brought in a melodeon, a little portable organ, to get them to understand tunes. And that caused problems. And yet, no division over the instrument was made for more than two generations. So that wasn't the instrument that did it. It wasn't Ferguson that did it. It wasn't until 1906 that Lipscomb informed the Census Bureau that we were divided against all that used an instrument. And this is before the Civil War. This all happened. Well, let's just keep going. This is a growing movement, but it's hitting some hiccups. By the way, just an interesting thing. Alexander Campbell was not his father, Thomas. Thomas was a very humble man. Alexander, not as. And he opposed the American Christian Missionary Society vehemently until they voted when he wasn't even there and made him president of it. Then it was okay. You know, I'm not saying that to criticize good old Alec because who among us is not that inconsistent? Who among us doesn't have issues, right? That said, by 1860, right before the war, there were 200,000 disciples in, in the U.S. The war was coming. Disciples were divided. And let's explain. Let's go to slavery. Martin W. Stone opposed slavery in any form. He condemned its practice. He called for Christians to publicly work against it. Campbell would not condemn slavery. He urged disciples not to make it a test of fellowship, whether somebody had slaves or not. He would not take a stand. But it was really the divisions over all of these things and then the war hitting that caused us to lurch into that template box and try to live there for a long time. It was questions of slavery, not instrumental music, music uh, missionary societies. How do you know? You will search in vain for finding out what Thomas Campbell, Walter Scott, or Barton Stone thought about the music question. Read. Read it all. They didn't talk about it. They were almost entirely silent about the missionary society. And yet when it comes to slavery, you can find not only, well, you can find what Stone, both Campbells, Talbert Fanning, David Lipscomb, and Isaac Errett believed. It was slavery that started the splitting. What happens when a church splits is it splits over personalities and beliefs, and after it splits, then they go find reasons for it. That's human nature. And we then make their reasons enshrined and we gild them and say, that was it. No, it wasn't. Stone and the Kentucky Christians tied Christian faith and social justice together. I'm aware that in America, the term social justice is sometimes used by the left and sometimes the right say, oh, that's Harbinger. It's one of the four horsemen of communism. No, the Bible tells us to do justice and seek justice. And I am absolutely a libertarian in every sense of the term that you can think of except for the political. I don't join political parties. I'm not left, I'm not right, is what I'm saying. I think your dollar is your dollar, do with what you want to, but I believe you should use it to pursue peace and justice. 
I think that's what God has called us to do. So don't be afraid of this. The stone side, peace and justice, and they, uh, in fact, they said, we're getting ready to be taken into heaven. How can you have slaves when Jesus comes back? Teach them about Jesus. Lipscomb believed that voting was sinful. Serving in the military, sinful. He was an absolute pacifist and taught that pacifism was what Jesus required. Campbell was not pro-slavery. In fact, he asked the Virginia delegation at the time, delegates, to take all the surplus money. There used to be surplus money. Surplus money and use it to free the slaves and send them back and help them reestablish themselves in Africa. By the way, that was tried, called Liberia, and it was done in almost every single way that you could mess it up. It was messed up. Almost every single way. Anyway, he believed that, that um, Christians should not be hypocrites, and he said, right now we look like hypocrites. We should free our slaves. But he refused to say he was anti-slavery and refused to say he was pro-slavery. He straddled the fence. Stone, as early as 1828, said, No man of intelligence now presumes to justify slavery, whether he be a politician, moralist, or Christian. He would blush in the attempt. It's 1828. Well ahead of the curve. And southern preachers like Talbert Fanning and David Lipscomb opposed slavery. So this whole, I, we got, this is complicated, you see? We're dealing with personalities, and they're all over the map here. Fanning had even been arrested for challenging and rebuking a slave owner for mistreating a slave. He'd been put in jail for it. One of the guys that founded this church. Lipscomb's family, I want to give kudos to Lipscomb here. There are times Lipscomb and I would just butt heads if we were in the same room. But you need to know he was a man of great integrity. His family inherited slaves. They wanted to free them. But Tennessee law said you couldn't. So they packed up and moved to Illinois for the very purpose of establishing residence long enough to free their slaves. I got to give him mad props for that, don't you? That was, that was amazing. And yet when it came time to preach against slavery, Lipscomb wouldn't, and Franklin wouldn't, Benjamin Franklin, not the guy with the wee glasses and the stove, but we had a guy named that. They found themselves tied by their rules. It's not in the template. It's not in our constitution as a church. Here's a quote from Lipscomb. Did the Lord and the apostles do right in never deciding the issue whether slavery is right or wrong, discussing or never saying one word about the question in any form? We would say that the bulk of Scripture teaches us that all men and women are children of God made in his image, and it goes off from there to say why we can't say that in our pulpits. Because they had been tied to something called the express command model. And so although they believed it, they couldn't teach it. The disciples were so divided. Hardy Butler, one of our early champions, moved to Kansas to preach against slavery, while James Shannon, another one of our big early champions, spoke at pro-slavery pro -slavery conventions in Missouri, even calling for war against abolitionists. Please remember, 
he is right up there preaching with David Lipscomb who says you can't, and Alexander Campbell, who says you cannot go to war and you cannot vote. Uh, when I said that by a while ago, when I said he was a pacifist and didn't even vote, I saw some eyebrows go like this. Are you aware that most in our brotherhood were pacifist until World War I? That was when it came out to be argued and fought. And about that time, American fundamentalism came in and our church lurched to the right politically and became more tied to the nation. If you weren't aware of that, we started as a, and we prefer not to pay taxes to the war machine and we will not join it. And I have friends on all sides of it now. For 300 years, we've been warriors. Tomorrow morning, I'll be speaking with John Mark Hicks who doesn't even vote. Guess what? Both sides are my brothers. Love them to pieces. Um, that was not an issue for when the Civil War came. You couldn't sit out the Civil War. It came to your house. Right? Um, James Shannon said, God established slavery and ordained it. Pardee Butler said it was abomination. Campbell, a pacifist. Lipscomb agreed, said no Christian could vote, no Christian can go to war. Campbell thought slavery was opinion, and everybody thought God was on their side. This is a family fight, and there's nothing as dangerous as a family fight. When war broke out, northern disciples joined the Union Army to wipe out the evil of slavery. Southern disciples joined the Confederate Army to oppose northern rule in their states. Lipscomb and Talbert Fanning found themselves isolated, hated by both sides. Now, all of a sudden, our movement was in trouble. Isaac Errett, the most prominent preacher in the North, preached a sermon in Detroit in 1863. Isaac Errett did a lot of good, but he threw a grenade in the room with this. His church was in the thousands at that time. And he preached that anybody who joined the Confederate war was not a Christian. Drew a line. Brothers and sisters, we don't draw lines. We open arms. We don't draw lines. That's not our job. He drew a line. Lipscomb started writing articles opposing any entanglement with government. Those in the North tended to go with Eret while Lipscomb held sway in the South. The American Missionary Society was a northern society. It was in Cincinnati, for goodness sake. That was considered the North. It published two statements calling upon all Christians to pledge their loyalty to the Union. How do you think that went over in Tennessee? It didn't go well. Because remember back then, the concept of one nation wasn't really a concept. You were considered United States, not a nation, but each state was considered a nation in many senses of the term. Therefore, this was, this was pretty tough. Both sides hardened their position, and you know why? Because like I said, it came to visit you. Lipscomb was treated badly by troops from the North and the South. His own son, his, his little boy Zellner, died at nine months old because he couldn't get simple medical care for him. Both sides had drawn lines around Nashville and civilians could not pass. Both Union and Confederate lines denied him access to doctors and he had to watch his nine-month-old son die. 
that's why you divide is because it becomes personal. It, it, you know, I try to remember this as I'm driving up from Spring Hill each day to, to be in the office, is that as I'm driving, listening to the radio or something, once upon a time, men were dying on both sides of me. And then they have to go home. What happens if they walk in the same church? Church, you want to know a shepherd's nightmare? Happens all the time. Two people in the church decide not to be married anymore. It becomes very bitter. And it's complicated. They divorce, and they both want to come to the same church. And they both want to sit with their friends in the church. Oh. We wish we could make that happen and everybody love one another, but it's hard to do that. A youth minister, the worst news a youth minister can get is that two of his youth are dating. Because when that breaks up, oh, that's no good. This is personal. Uh, Lipscomb became a partisan for anti-anything to do with government. Isaac Eret said this, quote, With many, this pacifism is a newborn faith, unknown before the recent civil war, chiefly prevailing among those that were in sympathy with the lost cause. Again, Isaac Eret did a lot of good, but that was a stupid comment. He was saying, oh, th these guys are only pacifists because they lost. Well, that doesn't help heal anything. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath, but we seem to have lost that often. This lack of love and common sympathy between the North and South was the root of the real division in our, our, our movement. It could have been avoided by love, but it wasn't the first time it had happened. Back in the early church, first few hundred years, when Rome would persecute the church and say, you know, deny Jesus or I'll slit the throats of your children, some people denied Jesus. Others did not. Those that did not saw their children brutalized. They were enslaved. They lost their jobs. They starved and watched their families starve. Those that denied Christ still had jobs, still had houses. And then after the Romans are gone, the persecution... And they say, the people say, we would like to repent and come back to Jesus. Those that lost everything said, no, you can't. You know, we look at that and say, everybody can be forgiven of anything. But that's because I didn't watch my child die while your child grew fat. And now you want to sit with me? Because you're sorry? You see how that works? We have to realize that this is real people. These are real people. Uh, Anti-war voices after the war, Moses Lard, J.W. McGarvey, who didn't like Lipscomb and Lard on other issues, agreed with him on this one. In the North, Isaac Errett was joined by Walter Scott, who died during the war, but wrote an article supporting Christians fighting in just wars. Lipscomb refused to print that article. It was one of the few he refused to print. James A. Garfield in the North, preacher in the church, became president for a bit until somebody shot him and some in the south wrote that he deserved it because he wasn't a pacifist and those that lived by the sword died by the sword we didn't do well during this time another change was in the missionary society go check my time we have about 10 minutes left um How much do I want to do here? 
after the war, instead of saying, we don't think this is wise, it became, you can't do that and be Christian. Everything hardened. Everything hardened. It's like not liking a guy and going and finding his dog and kicking it. We had to find everything they loved and kick it. We went from the Church of Christ, meaning all believers in Christ, which is what the word means, what the phrase means, to Church of Christ being a brand name for the southern churches, while disciples were the brand name for the northern churches. And if you've lived in the middle there, you know that sometimes it's confused. That still, there are churches called Church of Christ, and you walk in, and they're really part of the independent Christian church or disciples. And they walk in thinking, we're going to get a chalice and a guy in a robe or a woman in a robe and doing all this other. And they run across some of us and they're going, it's in that middle that it never really got sorted out. But the north, by and large, went disciples. South went and called themselves the Church of Christ. Um, Southern leaders who served until that time as leaders in the American Missionary Society quit, stepped aside, and wrote opposing them. One of those was Talbert Fanning, whose name's on that marker. He used to be an officer in the American Christian Missionary Society, and after the war, he said it's unchristian to belong to it. Well, anybody can change their mind, I guess. Uh, uh, it's a little awkward for Fanning, because he also, at the same time, was trying to set up a nationwide convention of Disciples of Christ preachers, which would be the same thing. But again... People are full of contradictions. Uh, when the Missionary Society published a hymnal, Lipscomb refused to do anything with it. Uh, he wrote an article against it in his paper. You might have heard of his paper. He called it the Gospel Advocate. He said it was because it was a city hymnal. The North was cities, the South was rural. The North was rich, the South was poor. The North was... Uh, not pacifist, the South was pacifist, and you see the, the lines. He said they had reworded the hymns to make them more palatable for urban northern dwellers. They'd removed folksy language and some of the emotional songs sung in the South. Lipscomb even started his own Bible school, you might have heard of it, to teach preachers how to preach in his own style. Now, his style was not the polished disciple style of the educated preacher, speaking what they have studied. His was the backwoods preacher, the pioneer preacher. That was looked down upon by the North, and the North shouldn't have done that. Well, they looked down upon the North and made fun of preachers that had degrees in colleges. And in our movement until the 1970s, most of our preachers had no degree in Bible, but instead they'd go through a preacher school where they were taught to stay within the lines the, disciple, the college in, Ed, in Lexington looked down upon Lipscomb's little college. Lexington, Kentucky is now a, a large Disciples of Christ seminary. And the divisions began to go. Uh, let me just see if, how much I want to do more of this. I have so much here, I'm, I'm skipping. In the north, instruments. You know why? They could. They had the money for stuff like this. I want to give you a wee bit of an insight here. I grew up in seven countries. I call myself Scottish because I am, but that's genetically. <laughs> I've lived everywhere 
it seems. That's why my email is traveling mead. That's why, you know, that's why it's that way on Twitter as well. I can remember walking into church buildings and seeing elaborate chandeliers in Churches of Christ and being offended because we were so poor in our churches. We wondered whether we could keep our building or have heat. Um, we were talking a while ago about Alex Strachan and Glenn Rothies, and I remember we met, this is a, a place in Scotland, when we were helping to start that church, I was a teenager, and we met in a cold stone building with a little color, a little um, like propane thing. That was the only heat, and it didn't do anything because the moist heat, or rather moist cold out of the stones would just cook its way into it. And then I'd come to America, and I'd see if they just sell one of those chandeliers, we could do so much for the next 10 years. So I understand the north-south issue with money. I do. And I've walked into churches where they put more money in the organ than they've ever put into feeding the homeless. That's an issue. So let's not pretend that these were all silly people. Both sides had, had good points. And both sides did stupid things. But the North tended to use the instruments because they had the money to do it. They printed books because they had the money to do it. They had missionary societies because they had the money to travel and work. For the people in the South, as you know, worked all day long just to have enough food to maybe survive to work all day long the next day. It becomes personal. When a Southerner traveled north to Lexington or Cincinnati or Detroit and found beautiful buildings, lighting as in organs, they went back to the Bible to find ways to condemn it, and they came up with something called the rule of silence, which is not accepted in science, not accepted in philosophy, not accepted anywhere except within our little tribe. There's a reason for that. It doesn't work. You cannot apply it consistently. Remember this. Uh, I've got four minutes. The early church did not use instruments for three main reasons. One, they sang in a synagogue style, which was not the temple style. And the synagogue style was a cappella. Two, they had very little in funds until the church, Rome recognized their church in the 300s. And three, they said, we don't use instruments because they make us look like Jews. And some of them would say, and pagans. You will search for vain in the first few hundred years of our church to find people using scriptural reasons not to use instruments. It was all racist, really. We don't want to be looked upon as Jewish. So we're going to do it a different way. That's kind of like driving on the right-hand side of the road because you don't want to be allied with Breton who drives on the left-hand side of the road, which is exactly what happened. Before the Revolutionary War, you drove your carts on the other side, the proper side of the road. It was during the war that America and France made everybody move over as a sign of, eh, at Breton. Well done. <laughs> I'm sure we cried in our tea. Um, people do things like this, and then they become entrenched, which I'm glad they become entrenched, because I don't want to wake up in the morning and say, all right, is, it, is this our week we're on the left? You know, that, I, I don't... Um, Moses Lard was the first southern preacher to say 
instruments are the new Rubicon. If you cross this, you are no longer in our fellowship. The fellowship that started with their arms like this was drawing tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. It was the first call. Listen to me carefully because there's an exception. It was the first call in our brotherhood to exclude others and consider them not Christians. The one exception were the Christadelphians. Anybody heard of Christadelphians? Just a few. And they're, they're tiny in Britain. They're tiny here as well. Do you remember the Le- Lunenburg letter? Has anybody heard that one? There's a lady in Lunenburg, Virginia, who wrote Campbell saying, do you have to be baptized to go to heaven? What about those faithful people that were not baptized? And his response was, we cannot say you have to be baptized to go to heaven and that God won't save those others because that would make baptism the one thing. And it's a, you walk by the light you have, he said. You do with what you, what you can, with what you know, and God works with you on that basis. In the recent years, it's been found out that that letter was a trap sent by a doctor's wife to make Campbell come out as saying, no, I think other people could be saved as well, so that they could brand him and start their own church, and that became the Christadelphians. But other than that, nothing in our movement had ever drawn those lines before and said, you're not a Christian. They had drawn some lines saying, we can't worship with you or fellowship you, but this is the first time to say, you are lost. And Moses Lard was the first one to do that over instruments. Um, but next week, we're going to take a look at a man who decided to undo the unity movement on his own. A guy by the name of Daniel Sommer. S-O-M-M-E-R. Who not only did not approve of the declaration and address, but would call people together to undo it with an address and declaration at a little town called Sand Creek to undo our movement. And he took a lot with him. But that's next week. Here's the thing. I'll close with this. Have you ever fallen for one of those ancestry things? I say fallen. It's not like it's a... Do you enjoy ancestry? Fine. Uh, First of all, it's always fascinating to me. Everybody in America is related to a Cherokee princess. Good. No common folk here. I've had people say, oh, you know, you're, you're Scottish. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm. And I'll say, I have royal blood in my family. And I'm going, I don't have any in mine. You know, that's, and that, we're good with that. We're fine with that. Um, you go back in ancestry, and I don't have any problem with doing it. Just be aware, further back you go, the more idiots you're going to find. And I say that with full understanding that somebody one day is going to go through our ancestry and I'll be the idiot they find. When you go back in our movement as a church, you're going to find people who are good people who made stupid moves. And Christ loved them anyway and they are saved anyway. And one of these days, there'll be somebody doing a history class about the churches of Christ if this world lasts 100 years from now and they're going to talk about the stupid things we did. And we'll be in heaven and not care. Because we are saved by grace. Amen, church? All right. So when we talk about the bad things they did, we're not dissing them. We're understanding we are all humans saved by grace. But we need to know our history.